Paul says to us, I say again, let no one think me a fool, if otherwise at least receive me as a fool, that I am also boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly, is in accordance with his confidence of boasting. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes advantage or excuse me, takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. To our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant in stripes above measure in prisons, more frequently in deaths. Often from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often. In perils of water. He says, in perils of robbers. In perils of my own countrymen. In perils of the Gentiles. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. And Father, we ask as we open the word of God now together as an act of worship, Lord, as we've prayed and fellowshiped and sang as acts of worship. May this now be another act of our worship towards you as we submit our heart and soul and mind and spirit to the truth and the authority of the very word of God that you've inspired and given to us. So Lord, as always, we ask, prepare us accordingly that your spirit would give us an ear to hear what he's trying to say to this part of your church through this particular portion of your word. Speak now, Lord, through what you have already spoken to us in the word of God. And we ask this together expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, what was it if we were to consider some things that made someone like Paul the Apostle such a useful individual in helping the lives of others and obviously advancing the purposes of the kingdom of God? Not that I want to elevate any Bible character or personality over any other, but it's pretty hard beyond thinking of our Lord Jesus himself to find someone else like Paul the Apostle in the things that the Word of God records that he did that was as effective and useful in helping people, in advancing the causes of the kingdom of God. But what was it that made Paul so useful? I think one of the things that we see in this section, a large part of that, was his willingness to sacrifice personally through acts of personal servanthood, even to be personally broken through enduring, as he describes here, a lot of hard circumstances. 
rather than taking the path of ease or trying to avoid hardship or any personal cost, you almost get the sense that Paul willingly embraced it, almost as if he saw it was a part of not only ministry for the Lord, but actually just walking with the Lord. That it was a part of biblical Christianity to endure some degree of hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ in the midst of the spiritual battlefield. And as a result of that, Paul's life was very impactful. It was influential upon many, many people. Even as Jesus declared that he himself did not come into this world to be served, but to serve and to give his life sacrificially as a ransom for many, Paul allowed Jesus's way of living to flow through his life as a man And I think for all of us, there's great lesson to be learned because the more that we can allow ourselves to reject the pattern of the world, and there is a pattern of this world, the Bible even tells us in Romans 12, not to be conformed, to be pressured into the mold of the pattern of the ways of this world around us, not to be conformed to those patterns, that we should not do that. And the more that we allow ourselves not to follow the pattern of the world, but instead rejecting that to embrace the patterns of Christ. And what the New Testament tells us, New Testament Christianity is about, the more useful and fruitful our lives will be as Christians. And God will use us to much greater degrees. Again, remember the background of this section as we began looking at from chapter 10, which takes us really to the end of the letter, Paul in this section has kind of become forced to, I don't want to say become defensive. I think that's a misinterpretation. Not to become defensive, but to justifiably defend his own credibility as a minister of the gospel. And he's doing this to provide really a clear contrast to those who are threatening the welfare of the church through poor example and wrong doctrine and false teaching to misguide the church with deception and wrong ideas. In fact, we saw as we concluded our time together last time, Paul got very clear from verses 13 to 15, referring to these individuals that were unhealthy. He called them false apostles, deceitful workers who transformed themselves into apostles of Christ. That's the image they try and uphold. And he says, no wonder Satan himself can transform into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing, he said, verse 15, if his ministers, Satan's ministers, transform themselves into looking like ministers of righteousness. So these unhealthy and deceitful workers were spreading false teaching that was perverting God's truth and misguiding the the people of God. Uh, They were also trying to clearly, as we've been seeing, discredit Paul and his ministry because they realized if they could discredit Paul and his ministry, that they would make the sheep become more vulnerable because if they could pull them away from Paul, they had a better chance of misguiding them and misleading them in their own erroneous ideas and deceitful practices. And this kind of forces Paul out of love for the flock in the section to go through this awkward process of beginning to do some things that not only caused him to identify error, but to do what seems to be way more awkward for Paul, which is start to use his own life and ministry as an example of truth to try and let them see a good example so they could better discern a bad example and see error. Kind of like this is genuine, and therefore that's a genuine bill. 
this has got to be counterfeit and to give them that example. Nowhere would you really find Paul anywhere ever talking about himself very much. But in this last section of 2 Corinthians, because of what he's forced to do, we get insights into the personal life and the ministry and the operation of Paul the Apostle in a way that we get nowhere else in the New Testament. And it's not because Paul wanted to talk about himself or the way that he operated. It was because really he did this out of out of being forced to, to establish a pattern that was healthy to let God's people see what was accurate and right so that they could compare it to something that was completely wrong and unhealthy. And therefore we get the benefit of Paul sharing some really wonderful things with us. Now in verses 16, 17, and 18, Paul's speaking here. You can tell it's almost as if he's communicating in a way he's very uncomfortable with. Again, if you look back with me in verse 16, Paul says, I say again, Let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, he says, at least receive me as a fool that I may boast a little. The idea is to share some things a little about myself. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord. Paul's going to say, I don't think this is the way the Lord would prefer us to do things. But as it were, foolishly, in this confidence of boasting, boasting, why? Verse 18, seeing that many boast or brag According to the flesh, he says, I guess I will also boast. So Paul's being forced clearly to speak in a way that typically he was not comfortable with, nor did he prefer to, but he sensed it was a way that was absolutely necessary in this particular situation to correct wrong thinking, to be able to help God's people identify error. These false and deceitful religious workers As we saw somewhat last time, it seems they operated with a degree of great charisma. They loved popularity and fame. They kind of enjoyed sort of a a, a celebrity status, being impressive. They liked to be able to like the Greek philosophers of the day who would pack auditoriums and move around with great oratory skill. And they would wow the crowd and, and captivate people with their incredible presentation styles and so forth. And it seems that these deceitful workers and false teachers kind of enjoyed this whole process among the church, and they delighted in being seen as important. Something about a perversity in their flesh, they enjoyed functioning in ways where they were honored. And Paul's going to say it even led to them mistreating and manipulating people. He's going to say to us down in verse 20 that these unhealthy workers, where he says exalting themselves... They were abusing the Lord's people. They were taking control over people and and were stealing things from them and domineering them and taking advantage of them. And here we read in these verses as Paul's trying to counteract this tendency towards this unhealthy boasting and bragging that the others seem to do quite a bit of. You notice he mentions in verse 18, he says, many of them, again, he's, he's identifying, he says, many of them are doing what? They enjoy boasting according to the flesh. One translation renders that they are boasting in their human achievements in the way that the world does. So their lives were characterized by conducting themselves and speaking to people and in front of people in ways that seem to just always land upon drawing attention to themselves and causing people to be enamored by them or their ability or personality and always kind of tended to land upon promoting their achievements or what they were doing or how successful they were. And there was this unhealthy underlying 
intention of getting focus of people to be impressed with them. Something about their personality and that they were special and to get people to admire them. And it seems that they enjoyed admiration, which led to this boasting and this exalting of themselves. That something in the perversity of their flesh, they had a tendency towards boasting and enjoyed that admiration. And Paul recognized the church was being misled by kind of this, last time he used the word super apostle or these most eminent apostles, Paul says, it seems that kind of what's going on here, like we kind of have this Hollywood thing happening there, Paul says, where we have these super apostles, super pastors, super celebrity. And he says, it seems that this tends to be what you're becoming accustomed to there in Corinth. And so Paul, as he's addressing this reluctantly and sarcastically, seeing them being misguided, even as Satan misguided Eve, he said, He says in verse 16 here, look, if I truly have to act like a fool, if that's what it's going to take, Paul says, I really don't enjoy acting foolishly. But he says, if I truly have to act like a fool and boast of my own life in order to get you to be receptive, because Paul says in verse 16, it appears to me there that you like receiving fools. And it seems that this is what you become accustomed to. So Paul says, if I've got to behave like a fool, to get you to be receptive to me for a few moments, then I guess reluctantly I'll meet you on your own level and I'll do this. Paul says, verse 17, what I speak in doing that, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. So notice Paul says here, in doing such, I am not speaking according to the Lord in order to have to do this. Because Paul clearly understood this is not how our Lord operated in his ways. This was not how Jesus operated in his own ministry. Jesus, though worthy of all glory, worthy of all honor and being exalted, even Jesus himself in his earthly ministry did not draw attention to himself, make himself this great public figure. In fact, you actually often see quite the opposite. Jesus simply lived out his godly life, conducted his ministry very effectively, was very influential, and yet did it in humble servanthood, often in very quiet ways, ministering to people, dismissing the crowds, trying to avoid that. And as a man, he just conducted himself in a way that didn't draw attention to himself, but just sought to glorify God and to help people. And Paul, in this need to boast, says, look, this is not consistent with the pattern of our Lord. And Paul knew as well, this is not something how the Lord would even prefer for us to speak about our lives, because Paul knew that Jesus would not want any man in the flesh to draw glory to himself, or to draw attention to himself, rather that we would always seek to give proper glory to the Lord, and keep the focus on him. Remember Paul himself back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 29, there the Bible says that no flesh should glory in God's presence. No flesh. Paul said just recently in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, there quoting from Jeremiah 9, that, that those who boast or glory should only glory in the Lord. And he's making a quotation there from uh, James or Jeremiah chapter nine, where there it says in fullness, let not the wise man glory or boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might or the rich man glory in his riches, but he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And see, this is why Paul is so reluctant and it feels so awkward and foolish 
in this way to have to meet them on their level to kind of boast about and talk about his own life and practices just as a way to get their attention to see the error of the people they're following that are leading them off track and are misguiding them in their thinking. If there's one thing Paul understood and the Holy Spirit is certainly conveying here in the midst of this is self-promotion and seeking admiration of people. It's not just worldly and it's not just not like our Lord. Self-promotion and seeking admiration isn't just worldly. If you think about it, it's actually what the devil did. The devil himself is marked by self-promotion and by seeking to do things to steal glory from God and get the admiration himself. And whenever we do such as human beings, when we behave in self-promoting ways, or we begin to seek the admiration of people, it's really, really important that we recognize when we behave like that, we are not walking according to the way of the Lord. If anything, scary as it is, we're walking more according to the way of the devil, Remember, Jesus himself even said in cautioning, he who exalts himself will be what? Humbled. So Jesus said it is never good to be doing that. And Paul wants to clarify as he's forced to kind of speak in reference of his own life and kind of this confident boasting about, well, let me tell you what my life is about. If you really need an example for contrast of the error of their ways, Paul's saying, look, I don't want to do this, but to rescue you from being misled, he says, verse 18, seeing many boast according to flesh, he says, okay, if that's the only way I can get your attention, he says, I'm willing to do it if that's what helps. Verse 19, he says, for you, notice, Paul doesn't mince words, you put up with fools gladly, and then he says somewhat sarcastically, since you yourselves now seem to be so wise. In other words, Paul and his sarcasm to kind of awaken their perspective here. He says, somehow you there at Corinth, since I've been gone, seem to have become so wise as God's people. You seem to have become so wise in your own understanding and your love for what's relevant that you find it acceptable to put up with the most foolish individuals and allow them to do the most foolish things among you. Even he's going to talk about allowing your leaders spiritually that don't act like Jesus, and they don't even operate like Jesus. In fact, they operate in ways contrary to the way of the Lord, and Paul's going to say, and you let them treat you horribly. He describes in our further verses that very reality. Look what he goes on to say, verse 20. He says, for you, being so wise, putting up with fools, you put up with it, verse 20, if one brings you into bondage or slavery, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. So again, Paul here, notice when something's important, he does not put on the kitty gloves. I mean, he just goes right for the juggler and says things like they are, just like he did back up in verses 13 to 15, identifying them, calling them false apostles and deceitful workers and ministers of Satan, transforming themselves in deception into ministers of Christ. And Paul identifies here these horrible practices that the church was tolerating with those that they were allowing to provide spiritual leadership among them, the things they were putting up with were not only wrong teaching and false doctrine, which Paul identifies earlier in the chapter, but they were also, he says here, putting up with not just wrong teaching, but they were treating people very poorly. 
and they were allowing people to treat others around them in very improper ways, letting spiritual leaders abuse their authority and mistreat people and hurt and harm people. And I think Paul, as he's saying this, writing this out in verse 20, talking about putting up with such, it's almost as if you can sense that he is shocked, shocked that though they have the word of God, though they have the spirit of God, the spirit of truth, though they have the authority of Jesus as the head of the church, as their chief shepherd, what wrong things they were putting up with by others who were claiming to be shepherds over them. And Paul here identifies some of those things. He says in our verse here, verse 20, you put up with someone, he says, among these leaders who would bring you into bondage. The idea is bring you into enslavement. That is, they were doing things to bring people into further slavery, to make them lose freedom, to become more enslaved to different things. They weren't helping people find freedom. They're teaching their ministry, the things that they were doing were actually resulting in people becoming more enslaved in life, becoming in worse bondage to things that were destructive and not healthy to them. Now, again, can I just say, consider that. Is that not what Satan does to people? Last I checked, I thought Jesus sets people free and Satan enslaves people and keeps people in bondage. And so you can sense the chagrin in Paul's mind. He's thinking, wait a minute, you're letting people enslave you? You're letting people bring you into bondage? And he says, Jesus came to set people free morally and spiritually and emotionally. Paul says in this very letter back in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that when the spirit of the Lord is at work, he says, there's liberty. That is when the spirit of the Lord is moving and working in a healthy way and not being quenched, there's liberation happening. People are being liberated from you know, things like legalism and little rules and rituals and understanding that Jesus is about a relationship and grace and letting the grace of God and the spirit of God direct your life, not living this rigid rules and requirements-based lifestyle spiritually. And that Jesus comes and by his spirit liberates people from sins and things that keep them in bondage. And people begin to set, be set free from life-dominating sins and depression and anxiety and marriage problems. And there's this liberating thing that starts happening when the spirit of the Lord is moving among people. And Paul says here, wait a minute, you're not recognizing there's something out of balance here. These people are bringing you, he says, into bondage. That's not the Lord. He then goes on to say, you're also letting these same people, verse 20, devour you and take from you. Another translation renders that phrase, you let them take advantage of you and control you. Now, again, just a small degree of wisdom and discernment should make the Corinthians realize that's not proper either that they shouldn't allow themselves to be manipulated in a way where people are taking advantage of them, controlling them, devouring them. Again, that sounds like the agenda and activities of what a wolf does to a flock of sheep, does it not? That's what a predator does to a flock of sheep seeks to take advantage of the flock and devour the flock and use the flock as a resource to feed upon for themselves. And then considers them disposable, chew them up, spit them out, and find me another one to devour. 
And that's what a wolf does to a flock, uses them and abuses them cruelly, exerting control over them. Again, Jesus never treated people like that, did he? Jesus never treated people in a way where he devoured lives and took from people and manipulated people. Jesus said that he was a good shepherd who gave his life sacrificially for the sheep. But Jesus did caution that there would be hirelings and wolves out there. And he said, they'll be the ones you'll be able to identify who are robbing, killing, destroying people, taking advantage of people and harming the flock. And look, when someone is taking advantage of a position in our life personally, or if someone ever starts to take advantage of a position among the church to use people to get what they want, or to manipulate their position and take advantage of people, that is not something, folks, that we should just dismiss. That is someone we should dismiss. That's not something we should just disregard and ignore and act as if, well, whatever. I mean, that's something that we should stand up to as wrong. Last I checked, Jesus, as a good shepherd, drove out people that were wolves. He cleared away people who were harmful and who would try and devour and harm the flock. And I think that to a degree in wisdom and love, we should too. If that's someone's behavior, that's not someone who's healthy to be around people and certainly to be in charge of people. He says also, you put up with these same individuals, verse 20, who exalt themselves. Again, showing how these unhealthy spiritual workers they elevated their status. Again, they, they enjoyed the perception of importance, of being special among the people. They would exalt themselves. And as a result of that, they put focus on themselves and they took focus away from the Lord. And they were robbing glory from Jesus. And we should never allow ourselves or anyone to rob attention from the Lord Jesus. If that's not enough, look how Paul concludes. He says, verse 20, he says, and more than that, you put up with it if one strikes you on the face, slaps you across the face. Now, it is said historically that that was an acceptable practice among the famous Greek philosophers. That if you challenged one of these famous Greek philosophers who could pack a stadium and woo a crowd and you challenged their ideas, the idea was that at times they would strike people across the face publicly. And the idea was, how dare you question someone like me? Don't you know who I am? How dare you question my idea? Don't you know the authority I have? Don't you know the popularity I have? And that they literally would strike people off across the face. And this was an acceptable practice because of their elite status, the idea was. And so Paul draws this attention, whether it was happening or not, what he's trying to picture here is that is nothing other than Paul would say, that's abuse, man. That's hurtful, harmful treatment in a way that is completely inappropriate, slapping someone across the face. That's humiliating people and abusing people. And again, what Paul's trying to say, apparently this to some degree was somehow going on among the church, that these people were abusing the flock. They were humiliating people among the Lord's people. And what Paul's trying to say again, would Jesus do that? Did Jesus ever abuse the flock? Did Jesus ever humiliate the sheep? Did our Lord publicly embarrass people and hurt and harm people? Paul's saying here in the midst of this, I can't believe that you put up with this stuff. 
He's just shocked that, that this could be something that's happening among them and that no one was shocked by the wrong behavior or willing to do anything about it. That's why Paul says in verse 21, again, carrying on with his sarcasm, he says, to our shame, he says, I say we were too weak for those kind of things. But whenever anyone is bold, he says, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. So Paul sarcastically says here, I admit, I guess, I don't know, he says, I guess apparently we were just too weak in exercising our spiritual authority to think it was okay to badly mistreat you or to selfishly devour you or to do things to manipulate you in cruel ways. And no doubt what the Holy Spirit in contrast is drawing out here for us to see is Paul's revealing that healthy people as well as healthy spiritual workers don't assert themselves forcefully upon others. A healthy person does not bulldoze other human beings to get what they want. A healthy spiritual worker or anyone in any capacity of leadership does not assert themselves forcefully and bulldoze people and cast them aside as nothing but wasted carnage to get their agenda or to get what they want. Healthy people don't do that. Unhealthy people do that. And this is what Paul is trying to draw out to get them to see this if this was happening among them. And look, to draw this by way of application for us, if we ever find ourselves treating people in the ways that are described here, God help me, God help you to wake up real quick before we ravage and ruin more lives around us. And by the same token, if we notice people doing these things, may we, by the grace of God, have a little bit of spiritual backbone to stand up to such things in resistance and truth to those who are being forceful and abusive and doing such and call it out as wrong. Because listen, when folks do this kind of stuff, they do it to give a perception of their strength. And the reality is people who do that kind of nonsense aren't strong. They're weak. Do you know what they're weak in? It's called character. They're weak in character. That's why they behave that way, right? That's why bullies in playgrounds behave that way till somebody punches them in the nose, right? And th then all of a sudden, it's amazing the change. And, and sadly, people to this day, and even among the body of Christ at times, in perverse ways that happen in the flesh and the devil's manipulation can begin to bulldoze people and bully people and, and throw around their weight and authority in very unhealthy ways that end up harming and ruining lives. And look, that's a weakness in character, and it's a weakness in character that should be identified and addressed, and those with genuine, strong character, biblically, spiritually, should stand against such and identify it as an unhealthy thing to protect the flock in a sincere way. Paul says, we are kind of sad to see this going on, but he says, if I must express in my own confidence to show you a contrast, since this is what you're putting up with, of, of what true ministry really looks like or healthy Christian servanthood looks like. Paul says, let me address some of those things. And we'll notice as he concludes the chapter, he starts speaking about his own life. And as we read, quite a bit about servanthood, sacrifice, quite the opposite, he draws as a contrast. Paul says, verse 22, now beginning this section, he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. So it seems here Paul's identifying that he knew some of these deceitful workers and false apostles were kind of perhaps claiming maybe their Jewish 
heritage as a basis for their superior credibility and why they should be perceived as important and have right to behave however they wanted to. Paul kind of seems to be identifying that, that they think they're Hebrews, Israelites, seed of Abraham. Paul says, I am too. And I think what Paul's beginning to get to here is perhaps some were arguing they knew more, maybe because of their connection to a Jewish heritage, to the origin of the scriptures and the early roots of the ways of Israel, claiming those credentials qualified them. And Paul's just simply saying, not impressed. I have the same credentials. I'm really not impressed by those credentials. And I think what Paul reminds us here and kind of challenging this is there's nothing wrong with credentials. Nothing wrong with a person having credentials in some way, but that's not what's most essential. Paul knew at the end of the day, what is most essential is not what credentials a person has attached to their life or to their title. What is most essential is someone truly called of the spirit of God. And as the spirit of the Lord put authorization and validation in their life to let them minister among the people of God, Jesus would often call people to himself. He would give them power and authority, and then he would send them out afterwards. You remember in the book of Acts, this was one of the things that kind of baffled some of the people in the early days. Acts chapter four, when they saw the spiritual effectiveness, remember of Peter and John, they were baffled when they saw how spiritually effective they were. And they said, this is strange. These are unschooled, ordinary men who spent time with Jesus. And that was the only thing they could put their finger on. These men aren't formally trained. They're ordinary. They're fishermen. They're just fishermen from Galilee. But they did spend time with Jesus. And in a sense, their, their insult was also an indication of where their true authority came from, having been with the Lord and having been sent by the Lord. Again, it's not backgrounds. It's not networks, connections we have with people or special credentials, folks, that qualify a person to be a useful servant of the Lord. Those things can have their place, but what matters most is if someone truly called and empowered by the Lord. That's what Paul identified in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where he said he was so thankful. Paul said, despite my horrible background, and Paul had quite a shady background, but Paul says, I am so thankful the Lord had mercy upon me, and he enabled me and put me into the ministry. Paul's indicating, I didn't put myself into the ministry. And he says, and no organization put me into the ministry. Only the Lord can put a person into the ministry. And Paul understood that. And it's only because he enabled me can I do what I do. And, and remember, as Jesus called Paul and he described Paul's calling to serve the Lord and do kingdom work, Jesus said this of Paul's life, Acts chapter 9. It's very prophetic of what we read here. Jesus said of Paul, he is a chosen vessel of mine and I will show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. That was what Jesus said would be of Paul's life. And Paul's going to show here in our verses ahead that his seminary wasn't something he paid a high price for and went to for four years. Paul's going to say, my seminary has been costly. It's been my whole life. <laughs> it's been my whole life since I've been saved. It's been an ongoing seminary of buffetings and difficulties and hardships and struggles and just reality of life grinding on me and wearing on me and personal brokenness and sharing in the sufferings of the Lord. And Paul says, man, this has been a long seminary. 
But it was something that God was using continually to make Paul useful. Look as Paul begins to describe verse 23. He says, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. Again, some apparently were claiming, oh, well, we're ministers of Christ. And it's almost as if you sense Paul here, he's going to kind of challenge, wait a minute, you call your conduct being a minister of Christ? I want to show you what a minister of Christ really looks like. You know, and it is interesting, the word minister that's used in the New Testament, diakonos in the Greek, it's actually a term that today in our mind would be translated what we might consider someone who's a table waiter, like a waiter or a waitress in a restaurant. And think about what a table waiter does. Basically, a table waiter is someone who spends their time paying attention to the needs of people and waiting upon people's needs and caring for people and making sure they're staying conscious and sensitive to what do people need and and when should I go over and maybe when shouldn't I go over. And they're just paying attention to trying to do everything they can to pay attention to people's needs and meet needs and do what they can to bring to them what would best serve them and help them. And the idea there is Paul saying these people who are claiming to be ministers of Christ, they're, they're not servants. They like the title, but he says they don't live it out. They don't understand what a real minister means, Paul says. It means simply just a servant, a table waiter. Paul says, I am far more of what a minister of Christ truly is because Paul's life was marked by what? Servanthood. That's what Paul's life was marked by. I love the pictures of Paul the Apostle. You read the book of Acts. Even after they have a horrible shipwreck, Paul's going to talk later on about being shipwrecked multiple times. They're shipwrecked. They're on a, you know, just going to finally survive, got to shore, and, and basically they, they start up a fire. And where do you find Paul the Apostle? Saying, hey, can you go get some firewood and somebody get me my slippers and my robe? I want to preach a Bible study. What's Paul doing? It says Paul's going out picking up firewood. He's picking up firewood. He's doing practical, menial things to keep the fire going, to keep everybody else. Just servanthood, just like a table waiter. And Paul says here, look, this is the picture of true ministers or ministry, just those who are attentive. Paul says in labors, verse 23 says, in labors, more abundant. Paul says, I worked hard. I was willing to exhaust my personal energy, doing what I could to wait upon people in caring for them. And again, this just shows us again, too, this true biblical concept, not a current concept, maybe in some ways, but a biblical concept of what true ministry is, what a true minister is. Not someone who's lazy, but someone who is above all else, a servant. They don't neglect opportunity to serve people. They don't dismiss the importance of waiting upon people and tending to the flock and tending to their needs, much like a good and attentive table server, continually bringing what's necessary, paying attention. And again, it is a really, really, and I'll use the word sad thing, a very sad thing, I think, in churches when people in positions of ministry don't want to do the work of serving people. And what I've seen over the years is there are a lot of people that love to preach, but they don't want to pastor. They love to preach, and they may even be good at preaching. They love to preach, but they don't want to pastor people. They don't want to tend to the flock and care for the flock and do what's necessary to protect and to guide the flock. And the Holy Spirit here clearly indicates one of the first ways we can identify true ministers of the Lord. True servants of the Lord, those called by the Lord to be useful in life and serving. He says one of the first things you'll identify 
is, is they're like table waiters. They're, they're those who are laboring. They're willing to exhaust themselves, to exhaust their lives, their energy, to be able to help other people. A secondary way we can identify those who are useful to the work of the Lord is Paul's going to say in our next verses that they're willing to endure personal suffering and keep pressing onward. They're willing to endure personal suffering and keep pressing onward. Look what Paul goes on to say now. He says, not only in labors more abundant, but now he starts to say, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. So often enduring stripes, being whipped and beaten. Paul was many a times, he's going to talk about going onward for doing what was right. Frequently imprisoned. Right? We read the New Testament. We see that frequently. Paul the Apostle, as a part of his work for the gospel, was put into prison. He was arrested for gospel work. And these weren't like modern prisons. Three squares a day, comfy cot, free college education on your tax dime, widescreen televisions. They come out, they get a better job than you. Right? Now, that's not kind of prison these were. These were like Dungeons, dirt floors, refuse, filth, stench. If someone didn't bring you a meal, you might not even get a meal if someone didn't bring you one. And these are the type of prisons Paul found himself unjustly put in from time to time just for being faithful to Jesus, just to do gospel work. He says in deaths often, the idea is oftentimes Paul's life came close to death, whether it was by torture or by health problems or illness and disease as he traveled around and went through difficulties and risks. Paul goes on to say, verse 24, from the Jews five times, not once, five times, I received 40 stripes minus one. This describes the painful whipping process that we know as scourging. Scourging. Where basically they would whip a victim very painfully to torture them to get them to confess information or crimes. And oftentimes they would scourge and whip people in this way to weaken them badly before executions. And listen, God knowing how people can be very cold-hearted and unrestrained in their cruelty, in the Old Testament we find that one of the prohibitions God gave to the nation of Israel, to the Jews, as Paul refers to here this process, was that they were told that they were forbade to whip a man more than 40 times to spare from just unrestrained cruelty. So what they did by way of custom is they would reduce it to 39 lashes. They always wanted to just make sure they weren't too cruel. So this will pause, 40 minus one. So they always whipped a person 39 times just in case they miscounted. And what they would do is typically... It was 13 lashes across the chest. Then it was 13 lashes across the back and one shoulder, and then 13 more lashes across the back and the other shoulder. And when they would use these whips, these skilled people who would use these whips, which were leather straps typically embedded with glass and bone, it wasn't the coming down of the whip. It was the ripping back that would lacerate and rip flesh off the body. Extremely painful process extremely, extremely brutal. And Paul says he endured this how many times? Five times. Five times he went through that. He says they're going on three times, verse 25, I was beaten with rods, hit with rods or clubs. Once, Paul goes on to say, I was stoned. 
The idea is, again, there we read in the book of Acts, literally another form of public execution. And Paul tells us of a story in the book of Acts where on one occasion he was drawn out to the end of the city, was stoned, and left there as dead. They thought he was gone. Paul wakes back up eventually when the disciples come around him and he gets back up. And he, he goes right back into the same city and keeps going on ministering. And Paul here, he says, once I was stoned, at least that he records here. And then look what he says. Three different times Paul was what? Caught in a storm and then shipwrecked. And he said, I even spent a night and a day floating around out in the deep. Now, talk about miserable experience. Not only the shipwrecks, the storms, but floating in the open water for a 24-hour period overnight, being scared and cold and miserable. And let me just say, listen, folks, yet in all these things, please hear me in this, yet in all these things, Paul was in the center of the will of the Lord. And yet he's going through all this stuff. Not because he made mistakes or bad choices and he's suffering consequences. Sometimes we go through hard things and consequences because of our bad choices. That's not what this is. Paul is in the center of the will of the Lord and he's suffering hardship within his life and severe painful experiences. And here's why I bring that to your attention by way of application. Perhaps recently in your life through following the Lord faithfully. And you're faithfully living for Jesus. Or maybe in some decision you've made to do what the Lord has asked you to do obediently. You find yourself encountering personal suffering and hardship. Maybe you have gotten pretty wounded and beaten up by some painful things that have been done to you by other people that have left you hurting this morning. Maybe in some way like Paul, Maybe you've gone through kind of a major storm that's resulted in just a complete shipwreck. And maybe you've been put through some processes where you've encountered some unexpected severe storm that has tossed your life upside down. And has caused you to find yourself disoriented, major disappointment and ruin and damage. And it has devastated your plans. And it's caused you to suffer great loss like a shipwreck. And you feel like you're drowning, like you're drowning. If that's you this morning, let me say to you, don't lose heart. The Lord is with you. And he is able to heal and he is able to restore. And Jesus can rebuild. Even after painful experiences, even after we get beaten up by people in this world, even after a life can get shipwrecked. Jesus can restore and rebuild. And I tell you more than that, he can still get you to your desired destination. He can still bring you to a good destination. He was with Paul in hard times and he did it for Paul and he loves you just the same. Don't you lose heart. You keep your eyes on the Lord. You keep walking forward in faith. You let the Lord bring healing and restoration and keep going. Keep going. Paul says, verse 26 here in our text, in journeys often, perils of water, perils of robbers, thieves along the road, perils of my own countrymen, perils of the Gentiles, perils in the city, 
and perils out in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, and in perils among false brethren. Paul describes how as he was constantly journeying and always going forward, that in the midst of that, he was always facing peril, or we might say danger in different ways. The word peril there just means danger that threatens to harm one's welfare. The idea is scary things, dangerous, risky things that could hurt and destroy a life, perilous situations from all different sources Paul describes here. And to me, it's interesting that Paul draws us attention to this because with Paul, part of his journeying continually going forward, part of that included, he says, facing a degree of personal risk constantly. No matter what he was doing or where he was going, Paul said, everywhere I turned, there was always some degree of personal risk, personal danger. It was a part of the process of moving forward. Notice that Paul did not seek to insulate himself from all potential personal harm. He didn't seek to hide himself away and keep himself safe, just like Jesus, who put other people's welfare before his own comfort and his own safety and his own willingness to suffer. Paul did the same, and true spiritual workers and true servants of the Lord recognize there is something higher than just my personal little comfort bubble. There's something more important It's honoring Jesus. It's loving and helping people. And let me just say this morning, folks, if you haven't noticed yet, life always has some degree of risk. You can be in the wilderness. You can be in the city. You can be with this group, be with that group. Part of life is personal risk, risking peril to some degree. It's so important that we recognize self-preservation is an inconsistent spirit with the spirit of Christ. Self-preservation is inconsistent with the spirit of the spirit of Christ. Think about if Paul and all pastors and missionaries and church planners throughout the centuries, if they only served Jesus, if there was no personal risk, the gospel wouldn't have reached hardly anywhere. Churches wouldn't be planted anywhere. Think of what some missionaries risk, the peril they risk for the cause of the kingdom of God. Well, if I go there, I might get harmed if i go there my family might get captured if i go there i might get a horrible disease or or but with personal risk they realize the peril and they push through because either the lord's going to protect us or it's his will and, and, and they just they face personal risk if christians throughout the centuries only worship jesus if there was 100 percent safety guaranteed christians wouldn't gather in most places in the world This is a part of the process of every believer's journey, facing fear, some risk, but pressing onward in faith. And this is what we see Paul doing here. Verse 27, he says, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, and in cold and in nakedness. Paul further describes difficulties and unpleasant sacrifices going at times without meals, going at times without sleep, giving up rest, giving up, you know, things that were comforts of everyday life. But again, this is what true servants of the Lord, Paul is trying to say, this is what they do. They're willing to make personal sacrifices to push through some difficult things to keep going. You know, we look at Paul, the apostle's life here, and I don't know about you, but it's searching to ask ourselves, how, how does my life measure up spiritually? And I'm not saying we're called to be the next Paul, the apostle. 
But I can tell you the word of God is applicable and the Holy Spirit speaks things to all of us through the word of God. And to evaluate my life and to ask myself, Lord, where am I at in this measuring thing of personal sacrifice? Am I willing to give up a little sleep for Jesus' sake once in a while? Or or to miss some opportunity or to deal with some difficulty or lack of comfort? And on top of all the personal hardship, Paul says, if that weren't enough, he says, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, notice my deep concern for all the churches. So Paul says, if those physical hard circumstances weren't enough, he says, I carried this internal burden on my heart for concern for all the churches that Paul planted. Again, Paul shows here another mark of a true minister of the gospel that he has a heart for the flock. And Paul says this deep concern. I I live with this constant concern in my heart for the churches, for the Christians, knowing how they're doing. And it, it weighed upon his heart. Paul says, verse 29, despite these things, he says, who is weak? I'm not weak. In other words, Paul says, I'm I'm tired, but I'm not weakened in my resolve. I'm strengthened in my resolve to keep going. And he says, who's made to stumble? And I don't burn with indignation. In other words, Paul's saying, yes, there are times I'm painfully mistreated, but I don't retreat into resentment. Oh, well, they hurt me. That's it. Paul says, I don't retreat into resentment and a bitter spirit. I choose to love and forgive and like Jesus, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do and and to just keep going forward to keep pressing through those very things. Paul says, and if I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern, notice my infirmity. Paul said, I don't want to brag about my strength. He says, but I'll let people see how weak I am. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. Paul says, I'm just being transparent here. And then it's almost as if Paul gives us this, I call it bonus footage. Look at verse 32 and 33 as he concludes. He just throws in here. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas the king was guarding the city of Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hand. So Paul gives this one last example here of part of the difficulties he went through in his life. And he's describing an event, you can read it in Acts chapter 9, early in his ministry, which was a major disappointment and circumstantial hardship and personal letdown in Paul's life, you might say. Instead of Paul progressing and prospering, the door closes and he has to do something different than he once was as he's pushed out of the city and he's sent away in this humble way as he's lowered over a wall in a basket. And I tell you, that must have been a very discouraging setback for Paul the Apostle. That was probably a very disheartening and disappointing thing. In fact, interesting to me, just the language the Holy Spirit says there. Look what he says. I was let down. I was let down. Another translation says, I was lowered. And I draw this to your attention because that sort of became an early pattern for Paul. That sometimes Paul had to be brought low in order to be raised back up. And Paul realized this was just a part of the process, sometimes the way of the Lord to develop character and to make us more useful is sometimes we have to endure disappointment. Sometimes we have to go through difficulty. Sometimes we have to go through let down in our lives and be made low because a part of the Christian life sometimes is being brought low so that God can then raise us back up. 
And the Bible says what? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may lift you up in due time. Even out of great disappointment and great letdown, God can use that to then bring something later on in your life to take you from the valley to the mountain. So take heart. Let's stand together. Father, thank you.